we made it to episode 100. And on the show today, the Facebook row in Australia. What might it mean, not just for Australians, but for the rest of the world? Apple tips, more on the guide dog issue, scanning technologies, and much more. Nice to be back with you once again. I trust that you're well. If you're listening to this on the podcast version of Mosin at Large, then it's a bit of a milestone episode because we've hit episode 100, which is amazing. It has evolved in ways that I did not expect when I started this. I ended the blind side when I started working for Ira because I knew I'd be doing a lot of travel, that it would be pretty intense work, and the blind side took some time, and I decided I really needed to just focus Then, when I started working in my new job, I had to make a really difficult decision. Do I stay with my internet radio show, The Mosin Explosion, which has really stood the test of time and been going for over 20 years, or do I start another podcast with the very limited free time that I have in this role? And sentimentality won the day, and I decided I wanted to stick with The Mosin Explosion. It's just been going so long. It's sort of an institution. It's always there. People come and go, they dip in and they dip out. And then I had this brainwave and I thought, we do do a little bit of talking on the Mosin Explosion when we were doing it on a Saturday afternoon. Why can't I just take some of the talky bits from the Mosin Explosion and turn that into a podcast? And occasionally I might have time to do demos and things like that. So I'll just call it Mosin at Large and it'll be what it'll be. We put the first episode out in August of 2019, and before I knew it, the audience decided what it would be, because we started getting an increasing number of audio contributions. And the Mosin Explosion started to change from a show that was primarily music, with quite a bit of talk thrown in, to the other way round. And then gradually, over time, we just didn't have time for any music at all. And that saddened some of the original Mosin Explosion fans who didn't want all this tech talk and all that malarkey. So in June, Mosin at Large took over the Saturday slot and the Mosin Explosion moved to weekdays. So we now make everybody happy, I hope. We get five hours of Mosin Explosion, the music show, during the week, more than there used to be. And we still have Mosin at Large in the weekend. And Mosin at Large has just become this amazing phenomenon thanks to all of your input. I've been involved in various successful broadcasting initiatives over the years, including Main Menu and Blindline and others, but nothing, I don't think, has had the impact that this has had. We get thousands of listeners every week, and that is a huge privilege. It is amazing to me that a niche podcast like this can end up in the top 1% of all podcasts downloaded. That is amazing. So thank you. Thank you so much. I don't deny this thing takes quite a bit of work and I put a little bit of time in every day, sometimes before I start work in the morning and then again when work is over in the evening, I just might do a half an hour or an hour here and there so that we have enough material to bring to you every weekend. But I love it and I am so proud of the community that we've built together. But enough introspection, time for another episode. And as you know, if you've read my blog posts and heard my podcasts over the years, I am not a Facebook fan, to put it mildly. It has thrived on blatant disregard for the privacy of its users. It has played fast and loose with the data people have given them willingly, or that even worse, has been gathered without their consent. It twists its algorithms in a way that has polluted the public discourse. 
It has eliminated competitive threats by buying them up and sucking them into its ignominious empire. It doesn't pay its fair share of taxes in many of the countries where it's operating, which is something as a former small business owner I find repugnant. I left Facebook in disgust soon after the Cambridge Analytica scandal, only to return in a much lower key way for the company I worked for at the time. I do not like Facebook. I say this because I want to convey how surprised and uncomfortable I am to find myself at least partially taking Facebook's side on any issue. But I'd like to talk with you about this because I think it is a very important issue. And grown-ups, in my view, should be required to separate the point being made from who is making the point, if that point has some validity. This is all about the controversy that has made global news this week, as the Australian government seeks to implement a code, which essentially is a law, that would require big tech to pay big media for use of their content. This Australian government has close links to and sympathy for one of the most famous Australians in the world, and someone who has also done tremendous damage to the public discourse around the world. I am, of course, referring to Rupert Murdoch. You'd have to say that if we were talking about a novel here, that all of the characters in it are not particularly likable. Now, media outlets are concerned that Facebook advertising is hitting advertising revenue hard on traditional media outlets. And I think most people agree that big tech should pay their fair share of taxes and be responsible corporate citizens. That's not just about tax. That also means weeding out conspiracy theories, false news and hate speech. It means promoting dialogue that allows us to understand one another even when we disagree with each other. Facebook fails dismally in so many ways. There's also concern about the huge dominance and power of these big tech companies, which is creating market distortions. All very valid concerns. In the USA and the EU, they're seeking to address those concerns, the dominance of big tech, via antitrust measures. Australia's code says that if big tech companies want to feature Australian media content on their sites, then those big tech companies must pay for it. They're free to negotiate a deal, but if they can't, an arbitration process can determine a fair price. Now, where Google is concerned, it's a more complex issue in my view, because when you look at those featured snippets from the web that you see on Google, so much of the article is available via Google that the reader may never click through to the originating website. That deprives commercial outlets of revenue derived from people who click through to the website. And it potentially deprives all content creators, commercial or not, from establishing a direct relationship with a reader. For example, if you read enough through a Google featured snippet from the web to get your answer, you may never know that had you clicked through to the website whose intellectual property Google was siphoning, you would have had the chance to subscribe to a newsletter or receive notifications that you may actually be interested in. That said, by adding a simple line of code to a website, you can exclude your site from Google search. The fact that most sites don't is an indication that Google search drives a lot of traffic to people's websites. But as I say, the Google issue is, in my view, a bit more complex. Google is using automated algorithms to gather information, but how does news get on Facebook? Well, it gets there either because media outlets operate their own Facebook pages and choose to publish it there, or 
end users share the link. When that link is published to Facebook, sure, there is a preview that not everybody clicks through, but Facebook's data say that last year they sent 5 billion clicks to Australian publishers, and they estimate that that generated $407 million for the publishers. If publishers were taking a principled stand, rather than simply seeing a golden goose and seeing how far they can push the Australian government, they could have removed their Facebook presence as a matter of principle. One of our media outlets in New Zealand, Stuff, did exactly that last year, on the grounds that they were troubled about being associated with Facebook and all the social damage it's doing. Stuff's users can still share links if they want on Facebook, but Stuff itself no longer has a Facebook page. So the Australian government is saying that even though Facebook is not republishing the content on their own platform, even though Facebook is sending people directly to Australian sites and generating considerable revenue for those sites, on top of that, Facebook is also being asked to pay some sort of licence. This is government-sanctioned extortion, plain and simple. And even if we don't like Facebook, we should be concerned about this. The internet has transformed the lives of blind people who have access to it for the better. At the heart of the internet is the World Wide Web. Most of us use it daily if we're online. The web is successful because it is open. That is a key principle of the internet. Anyone can set up a website and link to another website. It's the links on the World Wide Web that make it a web. Now, if without permission or an appropriate license, I take an article that you've written on your website and I copy it to the clipboard and then I paste it into WordPress and publish it on my own website, I have stolen your intellectual property. That's bad. And you have legal redress, as you should. But if I publish a blog post reference a tiny fragment of your article, and I link to that website, I'm acting in the spirit of the web that has made it what it is. You might argue that the difference is that Facebook is profiting from publishing links to news stories. Well, that's certainly one of the things they do, and they do sell ads. But if we say that's bad, where does it end? I have several examples that I think are similar, but are getting no attention from the Australian government. But the danger is that if this precedent is set, they may come for them too. First, an example from the blind community. Some of you may subscribe to a newsletter that has run for many years now. It's produced by Dean Martineau and it's called Top Tech Tidbits. For a long time, that newsletter has contained ads for its primary sponsor. I have no problem with that at all because somebody is doing the work and they should be compensated for their good work. Recently, a new company has taken over that newsletter, and it's changed quite a lot. They now have a range of sponsorship packages companies can purchase to advertise in the newsletter. I have no problem with that either. Good luck to them. My content has featured regularly on Top Tech Tidbits since the newsletter started. Whether it's a blog post, a podcast, or a tutorial, they'll describe it in brief and then provide a link. If we applied the Australian government logic to top tech tidbits and me, you could say that I should be able, legally, to charge them. 
every time they link to anything that I produce because my content is making their newsletter valuable. It's news someone can use, so people look at it every week and read the ads. If I tried that, they would come back to me, I would hope, and say, get a grip, dude. Our readers are not all your readers or listeners. We're giving you exposure to people who may not otherwise have known about your content, and I agree. It's a mutually beneficial relationship. But if I didn't think so, I'm sure that if I wrote to Dean and said, please don't put my content in your newsletter anymore, he would oblige. But why on earth would I? Why is it in my best interest to do that? But it does beg the question, if the Australian government thinks it's okay for Murdoch and his mates to extort a fee from Facebook just because users include a link or the media outlet volunteers to provide links to its own content, how come much smaller operators are missing out? Where does this stop? Why just Facebook and other big tech companies? It seems like public policy born of frustration and vindictiveness, and that's very bad public policy motivation. Let's also remember that some of these media websites and apps are horribly inaccessible. Sometimes finding links on social media can be much easier than trawling through these horrible sites. For all their faults, at least Facebook has an accessibility team. Many media outlets don't give a flying flamingo about whether blind people can read their content. That brings me to my next point. For reasons of accessibility and efficiency, I get most of my news from RSS readers. Is the Australian government going to come after them too? Because if they're being consistent, they should. Users have to pay for some of these RSS readers and feed aggregators. They collate news stories from feeds that you subscribe to. Now, you may argue that the difference is that the RSS feeds are usually provided by the publisher. But let's not forget, the publishers often have their own Facebook pages too. So this is a very like-for-like comparison. So why is the Australian government pinging Facebook for linking to content, but not RSS app developers? To be honest, I think it simply comes down to the fact that some of these people are so tech illiterate that they don't know what an RSS reader is. But if they do come for the RSS readers, many blind people will regret not speaking out about this now. If Australia gets away with this, Murdoch will try it in other countries where he holds a lot of sway. Facebook was presented with two choices, pay up or don't allow Australian news on its platform. And it has made a valid business decision. It has decided that given how much revenue it generates for others, it can walk away with minimal revenue impact on itself. Now, all the media outlets in Australia are squealing because their racketeering has been busted. And a damn good thing too. That said, there's no doubt that the manner in which Facebook has walked away has inflicted huge brand damage, which is typical of Facebook. It brings me back to everything wrong with the platform. And I'm not deluded. I'm not saying that Facebook is doing this out of some sort of principled stand over a free and open internet. It's a calculated business decision about its own bottom line, about what might happen if Australia sets a precedent. Much as we can lament it, all businesses must act in the best interests of their shareholders. It just so happens that on this occasion, 
Facebook has some very unlikely allies. But in typical, arrogant, haphazard Facebook fashion, they've alienated many people who might otherwise have had a little sympathy or at least being willing to hear the argument through lousy, cruel, arrogant execution. I know our friends at Blind Citizens Australia have been caught up in this so-called news ban along with many other worthy community organisations. That's clearly ridiculous and I understand Facebook is tweaking their settings now. So this issue of a free and open internet where anyone can link to any publicly available content is the bedrock of the internet. Much as it nauseates me to say it, Facebook is in the right on this one. Hi, Jonathan. I am Anil. Congratulations to you on reaching 100th episode of Mozan at Large. And we as a community, it is a remarkable job. Coming to the point of Australia, News Media Bargaining Amendment Code, I would agree with that in case of search engine companies like Google, actually Google only, I believe, who are using search results, providing almost complete news articles in the search results area. But in case of Facebook, news agencies themselves and sometimes individuals share the links of news articles. So I would stand with the Facebook's point. Like the show? Then why not like it on Facebook too? Get upcoming show announcements, useful links and a bit of conversation. Head on over now to facebook.com slash Mosin at large. That's facebook.com slash M-O-S-E-N at large to stay connected between episodes. Mosin at large podcast. More on the guide dog discussion this week. Christopher Idris Crawley writes, Hey, Jonathan. First, I am a big fan of your show. I appreciate you discussing such sensitive topics on the podcast. I do have a few points, if you don't mind. As a Muslim, I hope to bring something to the conversation. 1. I ultimately agree with you that dog guides should never be refused in taxis or Uber slash Lyft vehicles. Islamically, at least from my understanding, the dog is not allowed in a private residence. However, it is completely fine outside of it. The saliva from a dog would need to be cleaned thoroughly, but it is not forbidden to come in contact with a dog. In fact, a Muslim could have a dog as a pet as long as it stays outside of the house. 2. To my knowledge, there is nothing keeping a Muslim driver from transporting a dog guide in their vehicle. These are common misconceptions that could have easily been cleared up if a Muslim who was educated in Scripture and the Islamic sciences were invited to speak on this. 3. The stance on dogs in Islam has to do with a couple of things, and yes, the saliva of the animal is one of them. A YouTube video does not change this. If we were to watch a video of a Muslim eating pork or drinking alcohol, does that mean that it is allowed Islamically? It does not. 4. What the video showed more was that imams and other leaders in local communities and countries are allowed to gather, discuss and rule on a matter that has not been expressly outlined in Islamic scripture, although the text is a guide. For example, blind individuals did not use dog guides 1400 years ago, nor did they ride in taxis. 
The scripture would then be used to guide the discussions and leaders of the community would gather to rule on the matter. 5. Due to the discussions being dominated by talk of Islam and Muslims, I find it odd that no one from our community has been considered as a guest to speak on our stance on this. In my opinion, it borders on irresponsible. We do not like it when those without visual impairments speak on our issues and stances without us being included. How then is it okay to speak about Muslims and Islam without anyone from our community being represented? We have a lot of great blind brothers and sisters who could shed light on this issue. 6. It almost seems like Muslims are being targeted in this discussion. There are a lot of taxi-slash-Uber drivers who are not Muslim and refusing to take individuals with dog guides both from within and outside of the country experiencing this issue. 7. I know there are a lot of feelings about religion. However, that does not give anyone the right to ignore our perspective just because they have certain rights. We want communities to better understand blindness, not pushed away from being educated on the importance of certain tools we use for independence. 8. Has anyone ever considered having a dialogue with those refusing to take dogs in their vehicles? If so, then many would learn that most times it is not a religious issue, but a cultural one. 9. Where does the dog guide owner's responsibility come in? What I mean by that is that the vehicle is how these drivers make their money. If there is a lot of hair, saliva or smell left over, the driver would have to stop and take care of the situation before picking someone else up. This can be a very time-consuming process. This is something else that contributes to some refusing dog guides, although I don't support it. What are your thoughts on this? 10. In closing... A religious excuse, at least from a Muslim's perspective, is not a valid excuse in this situation. Also, I write Braille with a capital B. I want to throw that one in there. Again, I appreciate the discussion and your willingness to highlight this issue on your show. Thank you very much for your email, Christopher. I appreciate that, and I have a couple of things in response to it. I'll go to the one that's foremost in my mind. I think the term targeting Muslims has some pretty pejorative connotations. And I don't accept that that's what we've done on this podcast. And I want to take you through the chronology of the way that this discussion has unfolded. It unfolded because Bonnie and I were out at dinner with my son and his partner on a Saturday night, and we received a guide dog refusal. We almost got two in a row, actually. But we did have some dialogue with the second one, and we did get home. So we mentioned that without any mention at all of anyone's religion. I actually agree with you, and it might not have made it to the podcast version, but it definitely was said on the Mushroom FM version, which is the full version of Mosin at Large, when it goes out live. I believe Bonnie made the point that a lot of this is stemming from the fact that people are coming from cultures, from countries where dogs are rabid and some people have been attacked. Carolyn Pete, another of our contributors, made this very point. So I completely agree. In most cases, this is a cultural issue, not a religious one. We threw the blame for this squarely at the operator of the service, in this case Uber, for clearly not training drivers correctly 
and making it clear that they cannot refuse a guide dog. We did not mention religion and we did not mention race. We simply talked about the frustration that we feel when we're just trying to enjoy ourselves and we get this guide dog refusal. Following those comments, which I stress again, did not mention religion, we received a voice message from someone who is Muslim. We didn't know that he was Muslim at the time, but we did after his second message, which came in the subsequent week. In this first message, the contributor said that, in his opinion, there should be one exemption for the passage of guide dogs, and that should be religious grounds, and that we should be sensitive to that. So in the next episode of the show, I simply ask the question, what do we do when religion and civil rights for the disabled collide? And should there ever be an exemption on religious grounds? Should we as a community be sensitive to it and grant an exemption? We got a lot of comments on that. And at that point, we got a second voice message from the contributor who raised the religious grounds saying that he was Muslim and that he knew that it was not appropriate for Muslims to carry dogs. And he also made reference to the saliva. So you say that this issue could have been cleared up by somebody who knew Islamic scripture. It is not my place to know whether someone who lives their life as a Muslim knows Islamic scripture or not. And both of you are Muslim. He says one thing, you say another. It's not my place to judge which is true. And in fact, I think the best we can say is that these things are open to interpretation. At that point, I thought to myself, why is it then that I have been transported by Muslim drivers? It's clearly one of those cases, and you see this all the time in religion, and I say this as a proud atheist, you see where one piece of scripture can be interpreted a gazillion ways. So I felt that the best way to handle that was to bring on an expert who deals with human rights, who has actually, as a profession, sought to resolve these seemingly conflicting objectives where you have people with deeply held religious beliefs that seem to be open to a wide range of interpretation, as your email has indicated, and those who just want to go about their daily lives as disabled people with jobs to do, people to see, places to go. So since there are so many ways to interpret any scripture, and that's not just Islamic scripture, it's Christian scripture, it's scripture in other religions as well, my view was that the best way to deal with this in a sensitive way, but a way that allows us to have the discussion, was to bring someone in who has had a dialogue with a wide range of people, with a wide range of perspectives in the Muslim community. Now, I don't think that that's targeting anyone. We are having the discussion because someone of Muslim faith raised the discussion. We have had two contributions from one person of the Islamic faith, which we have aired in its entirety. And we've now had your email, which I have also read, and I welcome any contribution. This is a listener-driven show, so I welcome any contribution. You are welcome to contact anybody who you think might be able to add some valid perspective on this and invite them to listen to the podcast and do what everybody else does. 
Call the listener line 864-60-MOSIN in the United States. Attach an audio clip or write an email and send it in to jonathan at mushroomfm.com. I also agree with you that with rights come responsibilities. You may, as a guide dog handler, be permitted by law to take your dog into a vehicle that does not give you the right to take a smelly, ill-kept, ill-behaved dog into a vehicle. If the dog is misbehaving, the dog and the passenger should be required to get out of the vehicle. I completely accept that. As is usually the case, some Apple things to talk about this week. iOS 14.5 Public Beta 2 is out, alongside watchOS 7.4 Public Beta 2. And you will need them both if you want to use the new feature where if you're wearing a mask, which precludes you from unlocking with Face ID, then if you're wearing your watch and your watch is appropriately secure, you will be able to unlock your phone. So it does detect whether you're wearing a mask or not. And then it proceeds with the watch authentication if that's applicable. So that's a great feature. Also, I'm delighted to report that there is some progress with those Braille displays that were affected by the unlocking issues introduced in iOS 14.4. In fact, my Mantis is now unlocking remarkably quickly. It's never been this good before. So that's very positive. Unfortunately, the bug introduced in iOS 14.4 regarding the auto-scrolling, the auto-panning of uh, pages in apps like Apple Books and Kindle and Voice Dream Reader is not fixed. But to be fair, as someone who has had a lot of products management experience, if I had to prioritize one of those, I would prioritize the one that they did as well. That was more critical. So that's dealt with now, and hopefully, hopefully, knocking on the wood, by the time iOS 14.5 goes golden and is released to the public, that issue with the auto-panning of Kindle Books, Apple Books, etc., will be fixed, particularly for those people who at the moment are underrepresented on this podcast, as they are often underrepresented everywhere, deaf-blind people, the only way that they can read these books is with a Braille display. And often, they are voiceless. It is very hard for them to get their needs articulated. So it's the right thing to do to keep banging the drum over this. And this one, of course, affects everyone with a Braille display. So it is very important that Apple fix that bug. Recently on the show, we talked about Apple's voice control, which is pretty awesome indeed. And Shirley Roberts writes in and says, Which models of iPhone are required to be able to use the voice control feature? I am using an iPhone 7. Also, someone told me you really need to use a headset to use it effectively. Do you find that to be true? Thanks in advance. Well, Shirley, this is a good question, and I did quite a bit of research on this to see if there are any minimum hardware requirements, and I couldn't find any. All that Apple says in its knowledge base is that you need iOS 13 or higher. That implies to me that you just need a device that's capable of running iOS 13 or higher, which certainly is the iPhone 7. So I presume it would work with your iPhone 7. Regarding the headphone issue, I could count on the fingers of one hand, I think, the number of times every year I use my iPhone's speaker. But yes, and to elaborate on that and other things on voice control, here's Abby. This is Abby Taylor in Sheridan, Wyoming. Thank you, Jonathan, for the demo of the voice control on the iPhone. 
I tried it and I have found, contrary to what Jonathan indicated in his demo, that this is not as efficient, especially if you are able to swipe and flick with the finger. For one thing, with voiceover running, you need to have headphones connected or earphones, whatever, uh, some sort of earphone or headphone or whatever, because otherwise it's hearing what voiceover is telling you. And then it'll offer suggestions or it'll actually open something or activate something you may not want opened or activated. Also, the dictation is so sensitive. I was dictating email messages, text messages, notes, and I usually will say something to myself first before dictating and to get it in my, in my head what I want to say so that I don't make any mistakes when dictating. Of course, sometimes I do. But of course, unless you tell it to go to sleep with the voice control running, even if I just mumble it softly to myself, it picks it up and it writes it down. And then I have to tell it to select what I just said and delete it. Thanks, Abby, for confirming Shirley's understanding that you should use headphones or earbuds or something like that when you're using voice control. I would reiterate my comments about the efficiency of this. If you have an app open on the screen and you know the names of the icons, as I demonstrated last week, it is way more efficient to just say tap whatever the icon is than navigate to it by flicking. If you have a good spatial understanding of the app in question, you may just about get there with efficiency if you can put your finger right on the icon and double tap. In my experience, a lot of blind people don't do this. They don't actually navigate with their finger around the screen so they understand exactly where an icon is located. So if you know the name of an icon and you can just say tap compose or tap whatever and go straight there, it's pretty amazing. Regarding dictation, it sounds like it's working exactly as expected. When you have a live mic, you should expect the microphone to pick up what you say. And the fact that it is picking up even mumbling is a testimony to what I was saying about how much better it is than dictation. I guess many of us who have used products on Windows like Dragon will really enjoy voice control. And I've used Dragon Naturally Speaking very successfully to improve my efficiency on Windows and always wanted something that was that good on iOS. I'm not sure if we're quite there with voice control, but we are a lot closer than we were before voice control came along. And of course, a lot of people who are using voice control have very limited means of input. So maybe they can't use the virtual keyboard or a QWERTY keyboard. They might not have the use of their hands. And some may also have some degree of difficulty speaking. So mindful of that use case, Apple will have tweaked it so that even if you can just get some words out, then Apple will try and recognize it. Now, this one comes from Graham Roby, and it is an extraordinarily delicious bug. (laughs) I haven't played with this because I've had my folders for a long time, but I'd be curious to know if anybody else is seeing this. Graham says, hi, Jonathan. I hope this finds you well. Can you or your listeners offer me any help with the following problem I am experiencing on my iPhone 12 Pro running iOS? He's got 1.3 here, but I think it must be 14.3 if it's an iPhone 12 Pro. Uh, And my iPad Pro second generation running iOS 14.4 when trying to create folders. 
When I combine two or more apps to make a new folder, if iOS designates it a folder name not contained elsewhere on the phone, all is well. However, if iOS decides that the apps should appear in a folder that has an existing folder name on the phone, the fun starts. So for this example, I created a folder to contain Goldwave and GarageBand. iOS designated the folder name to be Music. I then changed this name to be Sound Editors, a logical name you would have thought. Once I'd done this, the folder name that contained apps such as Music, Tidal, Spotify, etc., called Music, now showed the folder name Sound Editor. So, I changed the folder name containing my music apps back to music, and you guessed it, the folder containing GarageBand and Goldwave also became music. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, Graham, this is really bizarre. This is not exclusive to music apps. Another example was when I created a folder to hold Chrome and Edge. iOS assigned it the name of Utilities, the same one which holds apps such as Calculator, Clock, etc. I then changed the folder name containing Chrome and Edge to Browsers, and lo and behold, the folder containing the Apple apps, previously called Utilities, also changed its folder name to Browsers. I could give you numerous examples which all follow a similar script. The only way I can get the folder names I want to use is when I combine apps into a folder that iOS designates a name that isn't anywhere else on the phone slash iPad. You can then change the folder name to the one you want to use, drag the apps you want into that folder, and move the ones you originally used to trick iOS into giving you a folder name you could edit. To try and resolve this, I have hard rebooted the phone, restored it from an iCloud backup, both with no joy. I then wired the iPad and reinstalled everything manually, and still the issue persists. I have contacted Apple support and sent them a screen recording so they can see for themselves the problem, but thus far they've not come back to me with any possible solutions. I thought this one might appeal to you being a fellow neat freak. Thank you, Graham. (laughs) It also appeals to me as someone who's had a, a lot of experience with software and bizarre bugs. That one is very interesting. It sounds like their AI that is making a decision to give a folder a name is not implementing any logic that checks. So you would think it would be simple enough to say, if folder does not exist, then create folder with this name. If folder does exist, then create folder with some other name. But it appears that logic is not in the code. So I hope Apple gets back to you with some sort of solution or seeking to investigate it further. Hey, Jonathan, this is Faras coming at you here again. This time I'm coming to wish you in advance a congratulations to the 100th episode of Mosin at Large. I've been listening since the very beginning of it, back when it aired, I think August or September of 2019, and I've been listening to it ever since. Love this show. Um, I've been listening to it on the podcast lately, but but I love the show, love everything that you do. Um, so, so yeah, I just want to say congratulations and keep up uh, the great work. Now, I have a tip for those of you who may not be familiar. 
If you updated your device to iOS 14, if you have been, if you are a user of containers, in previous version of iOS, you would have noticed that there are container sounds. Like when you move through containers and different elements, you, you, you hear this little bloop, bloop. You sort of hear this little bloop sound. And iOS 14, by default, it is removed. It, it is gone. When I first heard this, that was different. In fact, that kind of changed my mind on, that kind of was, it was a bit of a change because um, I kind of like those container sounds to help me know when I was entering a new container. Well, fortunately, you can bring it back in iOS 14. It says there's a setting in voiceover settings under the verbosity section where it's under the capitalizations and actions and all of that. There's an option where it says container description. So you can choose which sound, so you, so you can choose whether you want container sounds on or off. Be the first to know what's coming in the next episode of Mosin at Large. Opt in to the Mosin media list and receive a brief email on what's coming so you can get your contribution in ahead of the show. You can stop receiving emails anytime. To join, send a blank email to media-subscribe at mosin.org. That's media-subscribe at mosen.org. Stay in the know with Mosin at Large. Jonathan Mosen, Mosen at Large Podcast. Roy Nash is back in touch, but this time he's been in touch with a written down email, a written down one. So if you were looking forward to Jonathan, this is Roy Nash and Little Rock, Arkansas. You're not going to get it. You're going to get me reading it instead. Sorry about that. He says, Jonathan, you have no idea. How eagerly I anticipate your weekly Mosin at Large podcast. It is as satisfying as a cold beer or two or more. <laughs> it probably makes you wobbly and woozy. And yeah. I listened to podcast 92 in which you demonstrated LiDAR. It was helpful and enlightening. Thank you. I have an iPhone 11, hence the technology is not available to me. I will be upgrading next fall. I have questions about beacons. I have encountered them in other navigation apps. When apps refer to beacons, does the term have the same meaning? Are they permanent? Please explain beacons. You are providing a service which is invaluable to me and others, and I sincerely appreciate your dedication. I have turned many of my friends onto your weekly podcast. Thank you very much for that, Roy. I hope they're still friends after you did. <laughs> well, normally in an iPhone context, when we talk about beacons, we are talking about physical devices. Beacons were something that Apple introduced with a version of iOS several versions ago, and the app that seems to be making the most of them is Blind Square. I don't know if they're still there, actually, but way back when, in the CBD, the Central Business District of Wellington, we had a lot of these Bluetooth beacons that had been installed in businesses as part of a trial that Blind Square was doing. And you could go into a building and get information like if you want to get to the bathroom, it's here. If you, you know, different directional information, other things that were useful to you. It was pretty cool. And that demo will still be in the Blindside podcast feed if you want to go and check that demo out. Heidi and I went around and recorded it in the Central Business District. It was quite fun and we got a lot of good feedback about that. So Bluetooth beacon technology is hardware. 
And it's being used for a range of things, not just navigation or information to blind people. But when we talk about beacons in a seeing AI context with this new world channel feature that they have that's LiDAR-based, it is a virtual beacon. It's not a physical thing, and they're not permanent. So when you exit the app, you will lose that beacon. But you can get a lot more information on iOS beacons and what they can be used for on the web. There was quite a buzz about them when they were first released, and it may have been iOS 7 or 8. It was some time ago. And I don't know whether they've quite taken off to the degree that Apple was hoping for, but the technology is still there. I know there's a lot of interest in indoor navigation. It's kind of the holy grail. We're doing pretty well with outdoor GPS apps, but getting around, finding specific places inside buildings, that still is a big challenge that a lot of people are turning their attention to now and have done for some years. Thank you for your very supportive message, Roy. I appreciate that. And on a similar subject, Kelly Mugridge writes, Hi, Jonathan. Thank you for demonstrating the new Seeing AI app in iOS 14. It is a real pity that I can't have the latest version on iOS SE, which I still use, which is a little old. The beacon on the app is a really good idea for familiarizing yourself in a strange room. However, the only thing I wouldn't like is the tone sounds very unpleasant. It sounds like an air raid siren from the Second World War. I think I would prefer a series of beeps than an air raid siren. That is the only thing that would put me off. Although I use Seeing AI at home, I don't use it in public. I use an OrCam My Reader so that I don't display my iPhone. I'm a bit reluctant to use it because of someone stealing it and getting my data, which is personal. And that's from Kelly. And as soon as I read that, I thought, I wonder if Kelly is in England. And sure enough, it's signed Kelly Mugridge of Lockswood, England. I find this fascinating <laughs> that for some reason I get a lot of this. I got it when I was working with Ira and I see it now. Whenever we talk about using your iPhone for some of these apps where you might have to hold it out, most of the time when people say, gosh, I'm worried about the phone being stolen, it often, mostly comes from the UK. It's fascinating. Hi. Boy, I remember you from FSCast, uh, from, uh, FSCast and boy, were those the days. Um, but I wanted to tell you, I am using Podbean as my podcasting host, and it is so accessible. I, I had tried to use them from years back, too. So, But they, boy, they, they have come a long way as far as accessibility. They even have a thing on their website that, is uh, specifically designed for screen readers where you can set it so that it knows that you're using a screen reader, basically. And I was curious to know if you planned on having any podcast experts on your podcast other than, you know, um, the guy that's the uh, founder of your web, uh, your podcast host. But I was actually thinking about, like, Anna Parker Naples, that's what I wanted to say. This is uh, Nicole, and my pen name is Melissa Green, and I have a audio-only YouTube channel that is also connected to Podbean. So it's called Uniquely Abled. Thank you, Nicole, or should that be Melissa? I guess, as they used to say, you can call me anything as long as you don't call me late for dinner, right? Good to know that Podbean is making some progress on the accessibility front. It's always good when we have choices. I do intend to do some more on podcasting. For those who want more on podcasting, of course, you can purchase my 
very popular course in audio that's available called Unleash Your Inner Podcast. And it is really cool to see so many people who've purchased that course actually starting podcasts. So if you're interested in purchasing that and uh, learn about some of the things that I've learned since I started podcasting uh, 17 years ago now, then you can find it at mosen.org slash podcasting. That's M-O-S-E-N.org slash podcasting. But I do have some stuff coming up on the schedule for Mosen at Large a little later where we will be looking at remote recording solutions, which is a really hot topic for podcasters in the pandemic. And of course, it's a thing that could be helpful for people beyond podcasting as well. So we'll talk about that in a few weeks' time. It's the laid-back, reclining, chilled-out Julie McCullough who joins us now. She says, hi, Jonathan. I was just lounging in my recliner, listening to your program. And towards the end, somebody inquired about using a Fire Stick connected to a Samsung Smart TV. I also have a Samsung Smart TV, but I have a Roku Stick connected with mine. My roommate had picked out the TV and the Roku Stick, My roommate died last summer. I'm so sorry to hear that. I don't know that I'd always want to keep the Roku stick, but my gentleman friend discovered the voice guide. However, we don't know how to slow down the speech so that we can understand it. We hope it's possible to do that. Please let me know if the speaking rate can be changed. And it's signed a faithful fan and listener. Thank you so much, Julie. I appreciate that. I haven't had the opportunity to try a Roku stick yet, but I know that there are blind people who really enjoy them. And I'm hoping that somebody will come to my rescue and tell us how you slow the speech down and maybe do some other things. In fact, if anyone feels so inclined, feel free to give us a demo of the Roku stick. And to tell us why you like it. You know, there are lots of options out there, aren't there? There's the Apple TV set-top box thing. There's the Fire TV stick, which we demonstrated in episode 90 of this podcast. And there's the Roku stick as well. So isn't it fantastic that we have these choices? Jonathan Mosen, Mosen at Large Podcast. We've been talking about new computers. John Malia has bought a new computer and he says, I recently bought a new computer, a Dell. I am happy with it. I usually use a headset microphone and listen through the headset. The headset is a USB connection. I have a much older set of headphones, a CAS headphone, with a normal jack on it. When putting in the jack, music is fine, but JAWS has a strange sound with a slight echo I can live with, but it is different. Whoever thought JAWS would sound like a top 40 radio station? I checked the sound settings. I can't find the problem. I'm no expert. Thanks for any advice you can give. John, this is fixable because I have fixed it myself. Yes, when I plugged in headphones to my Dell for the first time, I thought, what's going on with this? Now, if you have gone into the start menu and chosen control panel, and then you've chosen hardware and sound, and then you've chosen sound devices from there when headphones plugged in and you've found your playback option there for your sound card and you've gone into properties and you've then gone into advanced. I hope you're still with me there. And there's often an option in there for disabling effects. If effects are disabled and you're still hearing this, then the problem is coming from the inaccessible equalizer 
that is a feature of the sound systems that are built into Dell. I have the equalizer set with Ira's help on the speakers because it actually gives it quite a nice feel on the speakers. But when you set the equalizer on headphones, you get that really weird spaced out effect, which I find very disconcerting. But it is not accessible. So if you have disabled any effects under advanced in the playback properties and it's still not gone, you will need to get, to the best of my knowledge anyway, sighted assistance to go into the, what do they call that, Max Audio or something like that, the equalizer that they have there. And you can set separate parameters for the speakers and the headset. It's possible you need the headset plugged in for it to be visible. If you can get a sighted person to just disable all the effects, turn the equalizer and anything else in there completely off, then it will sound much, much better for text-to-speech. It's the legendary Myrna Voda. Wow, it's amazing who's lurking out there. Hi, Myrna. I hope you're doing well. And she says, Andrew Flaters told us that they didn't put an SD card in the Brilliant BIX40 because it would have made the unit thicker. Since there is a full-sized USB port on the unit, people can either use a thumb drive or an SD card in a USB card reader. I just found a very small Kingston Data Traveller thumb drive, just about an inch, that I plan to use with the Brilliant whenever it arrives. If you're excited about future features of the Brilliant, Andrew Walker says he has a cautionary tale. Hello, Jonathan. As many who contribute to your podcast, I would like to offer my appreciation of your erudite, informed, and topical podcast, spattered with your own style of humor. Thank you, Andrew. People are nice, aren't they? People are. My main point concerns the most recent Braille, with a capital B, from Humanware, with hardware capability for audio output. As a purchaser of the Victor Reader Trek, however, just a word of caution. When the Trek was launched, it was billed as Galileo GPS Ready, the feature to be implemented via a software update, when the satellite constellation would be sufficiently deployed. I was very excited at the prospect of being able to have GPS accuracy down to a meter, so I bought a Trek at the first opportunity at Site Village in the UK, I think in 2018 or 2019. I already had a Victory to stream, so the purchase was for the GPS features alone. More recently, however, I have heard that the software update will not be available since it has been found that a hardware update would be needed to make the Trek Galileo capable. As such, I have taken this as a lesson for the future, namely to buy on present capability rather than future potential. As far as I can see, the audio potential on these new Braille displays is exciting, but the spectrum of outcomes may be quite wide and could lead to disappointment. To be clear, I'm not implying that humanware are doing anything sinister. I'm just sharing my experiences out there. Luis Pena is back in touch. He says, hi, Jonathan. I haven't been able to link Apple Music to Amazon Alexa. Apparently, this is not possible due to some kind of geographical restrictions in Colombia, in spite of the fact that Alexa and Apple Music do work very well in my country. I contacted Amazon and they told me that this is an Apple issue and that I should contact Apple. I called Apple and they told me that it is an Amazon issue and that I should contact them. So one blames the other for the problem 
and I am stuck. Searching on Google, apparently Apple Music can be linked to Alexa only in some countries. The only workaround that I have found to overcome this problem is to change the region of my Apple ID, but this is full of complications, particularly I am required to register a credit card in the US. I wonder if you have run into a similar problem in view of the fact that apparently Apple Music can't be linked to Alexa in New Zealand. Is there a workaround to overcome this problem? Thanks, Louise. Well, sadly, well, happily for me, sadly for you, Apple Music and the Amazon Alexa service work well together here in New Zealand. They didn't initially when it was rolled out to the United States, but it didn't take too long before New Zealand was added. The problem, to the best of my knowledge, definitely rests with Apple, or rather the decision about what countries to include rests with Apple. I'm pretty confident about this because I remember when Apple Music was originally rolled out to Alexa users in the United States, I was able to get the skill okay because I prefer the US soup drinker. I like the services offered there. They are the most fully featured and I like the voice better than the Australian and New Zealand version. So I have my soup drinkers all set up with an Amazon account that is based in the United States. So I was able to get the skill just fine. Where I got stuck initially was logging in with my Apple ID. And as soon as I logged in with the Apple ID to essentially activate the skill, it was at that point that it came back and said, it's not supported in your country. So I'm pretty confident that if you want to lobby anybody about this, it would have to be Apple and uh, say to them, look, Apple, please make Apple Music available with a Colombian Apple ID. This is Scott Daver checking in, and I think the last time, Jonathan, that I left you any feedback on a podcast was during the days of the Daily Fiber, which was, what, 2018? Something like that, I think. I was living in North Carolina at the time, I remember. Being on the beach and enjoying some nice sunny weather and listening to the Daily Fiber and uh, reaching out and saying hello. But I'm not here to reminisce today. Although there's nothing wrong with doing that on the podcast. That's not actually the point of my message. And you're probably saying, well, what is the point of this message? Why are you doing this to me? I I wanted to comment on your Brilliant BI-20X review in relation to another display that we have here in the States called the Chameleon 20. Anybody who's seen the Chameleon 20 was probably thinking, hey, that description Jonathan provided is pretty much the same. And you're correct. It is pretty much the same. All the ports are in the same places. The dimensions are pretty much the same. It's also very light and uh, has the same keyboard from, from what I can tell. Anyway, I haven't seen a 20X yet. Uh, and it has a lot of the same exact features as the Brilliant BI-20X. For example, you can do the same functions on them. You can pair with the same amount of external devices. And really, if you take the software from the Mantis and think of it in a 20-cell form factor with a Perkins keyboard, that's the Chameleon 20. Well, the Chameleon 20 has the audio support. The Brilliant BIX does as well. Uh, But they do have differences. Uh, As far as I know, the Chameleon is only available in the United States. So if you live outside the United States, 
well, you might pay a lot of shipping and you may not find it worth the uh, cost differential. In fact, you may not anyway. The Chameleon goes for $15.95, and I believe the Brilliant BI-20X is $18.95. So you do have a difference there in price, but you do have some differences uh, in terms of feature sets. And I'm recording this, by the way, on February 10th. And so by the time you hear this, perhaps APH will come out with an update, but uh, they have not since August, I believe. Yeah, August was the last update on the Mantis or the Chameleon. There are differences, like I said. Most of them are software differences, or I guess you would say, um, I wouldn't call it an OS, I guess a suite of applications, but there are some things missing and there are a few differences. For example, you have Keysoft Lite on the Brilliant BI-20X. You know, Keypad uh, is one of the programs that you mentioned Victor Reader, that's another one you mentioned. And there are equivalents on the Chameleon. They just go by different names. It's sort of been just rebranded. Everything has been branded for humanware on the Brilliant and not branded on the Chameleon display. So, for example, the Chameleon, it's called an editor, whereas the Brilliant, as I said, calls it keypad. Some of the other differences are that there is no menu customization right now, so you can't do that uh, same way you can't do it on the Mantis. There's also no exam mode, and unfortunately, there's also at this time no NLS BARD support for the Chameleon. Uh, I assume that's coming, but obviously I have no idea when, as uh, I'm not an insider at either company. So those are some of the differences that I can remember anyway. I don't know about the Brilliant, but I know that the Chameleon, when you have Wi-Fi turned on, let's say you're not using it, or maybe you have NFB Newsline set to refresh all the time, major battery drainer. I always go into airplane mode if I'm just reading a book because it saves a heck of a lot of uh, battery. I would say probably close to two hours if you run it that way. Uh, instead of having, you know, Bluetooth and Wi-Fi turned on. I don't know how the Brilliant BI-20X works, again, because I haven't had the opportunity to check one out yet, but uh, that's kind of the situation in terms of the chameleon. One thing uh, I would say, unfortunately, that the Brilliant BI-20X and the chameleon seem to have in common, this is based on my reading of the manual and also, Jonathan, your description, is uh, that, yes, it has a nice case in the sense that it will close magnetically and you have access to the keyboard and everything if you want to wear it around your neck. But I would caution anyone out there to avoid using that in extremely warm temperatures, especially if you're going to be in the sun for any duration of time. Uh, And the reason for that is that the case, as Jonathan said, is not an executive products case. And everything is held together by glue. So I was down in St. Thomas, which is one of the U.S. Virgin Islands back in November. And I would estimate I spent maybe an hour, a little more, a little less, uh, reading in direct sunlight. After I moved away, it seemed like everything was fine. But the next day, 
in the warm climate, the glue melted. One of the magnets on the lower side of the case, meaning the part that touches the Braille display, came out. How warm was it? Well, it was probably at the peak of the day, probably 30 or 31 Celsius. For those in the U.S., that would be 86 to 88 Fahrenheit. Hopefully, um, they'll have an executive products case for it. Uh, I think it would be a worthwhile thing to invest a little money in. The other thing that uh, I noticed, Jonathan, you talked about the thumb keys in the Mantis and that they were kind of noisy. I would say the same thing is true for the Chameleon. I noticed you omitted that during the brilliant BI-20X review. Uh, I guess I could have been an oversight, but I assume that means they're slightly quieter. Uh, that's not true of the Chameleon. Like I said, it's about the same level of noise as the uh, Mantis has. And the final thing I wanted to mention about these displays and the new HID mode is, and I think this has something to do with the new HID mode, I could be wrong, but it is the reconnect option. A lot of the people I work with are not really able to hear, say, for example, voiceover well enough to reconnect a Bluetooth connection that dropped. You know, there are certain things you can do without hearing the device. You know, you can toggle voiceover off and on, uh, restart the phone. That's pretty much all you can do. With this reconnect option that they have made available, I would say nine times out of ten when I have a Bluetooth pairing problem, the reconnect option fixes it. And I don't really have to intervene with my iOS device at all. So I think that's a wonderful feature that will uh, help a lot of deafblind people. All right, that's enough for me, probably way more than enough. I uh, hope you have a great rest of the show. Thanks for putting up with me for this long. Bye, everybody. Bye, Scott. It's good to hear from you. Thank you for sending that contribution in. And thank you for all of the great work that you were doing for deafblind people, which is such a neglected community with very complex needs, but also, you know, I often think that blindness is one of those impairments where technology can really mitigate a lot of the information challenges that blindness poses. And boy, it's doubly true, at least for deafblind people. The impact that well-working technology can have on someone who is deafblind is very profound. So thanks for all you're doing in that space. And for your thoughts on the chameleon, a couple of comments from me on your comments. The first one is that I think the jury is still out about the frequency of updates and how adequate they will be from the mantis and the chameleon. Because, of course, we have this relationship there where humanware is building this product based on APH's specs. And I suppose the question still remains for those of us who just consuming this product, who've purchased it or are thinking about purchasing it, how much time will APH be given by humanware in the development cycle so that firmware updates can come out for the Mantis and the Chameleon? Since Scott recorded that there has in fact been an update released for the Mantis and the Chameleon, I was really pleased to see them adopt the same approach that the Brilliant has, where all of the connections are in one menu now, in my view, it is loading faster, and there are a few other issues. It's a fairly minor update in terms of features, but it's nice to see that the update did come down. 
I know that APH recently did a survey of customers and potential customers to get some thoughts on what those features should be. But let's see, I guess, how frequently we will see major updates from APH to these products, which have had a very good start. Of course, that's set some very high user expectations, and the challenge will be for those to continue to be met, preferably exceeded. Regarding the thumb keys and the Brilliant, I no longer have the Brilliant. I returned it to Humanware after recording the review. So I can't comment on whether I just omitted to mention the thumb keys and they sound similar to the Mantis, or whether I didn't mention them because they weren't as noisy. But I'm sure that those who are getting brilliance in their hands can comment on their experiences and how they're finding that. Obviously, for somebody like me who does recording, then the sound that these devices make is pretty important. I'm lucky in that in this studio, we're using a really directional set of dynamic microphones So they do eliminate a lot of external noise. But if you're recording with condensers or microphones that don't have such a narrow pickup pattern, then the sound that your device makes, whether it be the cells refreshing or the thumb keys clicking, that's all a big deal. What's on your mind? Send an email with a recording of your voice or just write it down. Jonathan at mushroomfm.com. That's J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N at mushroomfm.com or phone our listener line. The number in the United States is 864-60-MOSIN. That's 864-60-66736. We are providing a demo of the Amazon First Oven. I purchased the oven... And I received it on September the 8th of last year. And unfortunately, even though I told the A-Lady to buy it with the Braille overlay, I didn't, wasn't able, able to obtain it that way. But that hasn't inhibited me from using it. I should explain that the oven itself, the first oven has 1,000 watts of power and the microwave is a a 1,000 watts and the oven actually has 1,300 watts of convection baking. And I preheated the oven and I want to tell the A-Lady to do something. I'll do that right now. Bake at 350 degrees for 20 minutes. Convection baking for 20 minutes at 350 degrees. Now, when the food is ready, it will let me know. Now, what I'm doing is I have a nice little beef patty and... I have some bacon, and I will do a no-no and have bread in this case, but <laughs> because I've been trying to avoid bread, and I, but I'm going to do something I normally have been trying not to do. But I will do it in this case. And when it gets done, it will tell me when it is ready, and I will stop the 
device. I love the oven. I've done numerous things. I've done everything from meatloafs to in chickens. But I will say the chicken, you can only do up to five pounds. So you want to really try to get like a four pound chicken, four and a half pounds. And what you do is you tell the A lady to cook, convection bake a whole chicken. And then she'll ask you for the weight. And then you'll tell her. And then hopefully she will obey. And of course I've done even things. I've done cakes. I've done all sorts of things in this oven. And I will say it is is good for my use. Now, some people think the oven doesn't have enough power, but it has enough power for what I need it to do. I think 1,300 watts is plenty for baking for me. 1,000 watts is plenty of uh, microwave power. The highest microwave power I've seen is 1,300 watts. We'll wait for this to end. And uh, because I want you to hear how it sounds when the oven finishes. When will my food be ready in the first oven? First oven will finish cooking at 2.47 p.m. The unit, I think, is a good buy. I think it was like $249 when I purchased it. And sometimes you'll see it on sale. But it is, in my opinion, well worth the price. Oh, here we go. There it is. And it's bacon that Stan was cooking. So we're looking forward to going to Stan's place for all the yummy things he's cooking up with his Amazon smart oven. And when we've done that, we're going over to Jane Jordan's house to catch up with Jane and Eric and Heather. Because she says, hi, Jonathan, we got our smart oven. And after Eric spent some time working with it, he started showing me how to use it. I've come from OMG, I am scared of cooking stuff in an oven to let me cook the chicken or fries or whatever in the oven. For the first time ever, I cooked supper for our family independently. It wasn't fancy. It was those frozen chicken cordon bleu packages. But I did it and no one had any complaints. No one got sick either, which means I cooked them just right. You've got to be so careful with chicken, Jane. Oh, boy, I could tell you some food poisoning stories. Also, since I handled it all on my own, Eric did the dishes. Good on you, Eric. Good on you. Since up to now, I've never cooked. I always cleaned up. But since I handled the meal, Eric handled cleanup. I've now done biscuits canned, but I am working my way up to biscuits from scratch. Curly fries, chicken cordon bleu potato skins, and I want to make cookies next. After that, brownies. From now on, I will not have to ask Eric or Heather to cook something sweet. I can do it and surprise them once in a while. When we first got the oven in Echoes, we were doing it to replace our old oven. But while Eric and Heather understood why we felt we needed it, I don't think they were very enthusiastic about having so many soup drinker enabled devices in the house. However, things have changed. See, you're getting the latest now hot off the press. For any listeners who have an Amazon oven, try these phrases. Soup drinker, nuke for two minutes or soup drinker, 
unleash the bomb for two minutes. Of course, using the typical phrase, soup drinker, microwave for two minutes, works just as well. Eric discovered the nuke phrase, and Heather discovered unleash the bomb. We also have invested in some light bulbs. I don't remember the brand that can be controlled by the echoes in the living room. In the morning, one of us can say, soup drinker, lights on, or soup drinker, let there be light, and the lights come on full. I can dim the lights to whatever percentage I want by saying, soup drinker, dim the lights to 7%, my preferred setting, or soup drinker, turn off the lights when we're done for the evening. Heather has gotten so in to bossing soup drinker around, as she puts it, and controlling our lights, we've got her her own set for her bedroom. Thank you, Jane. I would be coming over to your place right after the show, except most of that sounds jolly carby, way out of my diet zone. (laughs) But congratulations. I just think it's so cool when we're able to go out of our comfort zone, when something, whether it be a new piece of technology or just a skill that someone taught us or whatever, when something gives us the confidence to branch out and try something new, and we have success, makes you feel good, eh? It makes you feel good. So congratulations, and I hope you have many happy months and years to come with that smart oven. Just while we're talking about Amazon things, a couple of things caught my attention this week in the tech news. And if you like tech news, I do try to tweet quite a lot of articles, useful links on technology news on the Mosin at Large Twitter account. So if you're on Twitter then you can follow Mosin at Large on Twitter and get a good smattering of tech news as well as information about what's coming up here. And if you're not on Twitter, well, you can get on it, can't you? It's free. Just head on over to twitter.com and sign up. And of course, there are apps that are accessible for every major platform. A couple of things I tweeted this week that may be of interest in the Amazon space. One is that Amazon is apparently working on a new device. No indication at this point about when that device might be ready. But it's a device I often sort of had in my head. I often thought, wouldn't it be cool if I had an iPad free to try this with, actually? What they are working on, apparently, is the screen that is designed to be wall-mounted. And it's going to be your home hub, the sort of control center for your house. So it'll have the soup drinker built in so you can talk to it. But because it's got a screen, you'll be able to do video calls. You'll also be able to control all your appliances. So it sounds like an interesting gadget. And we'll wait to see whether it comes to fruition. Some of these things, of course, stay stuck in the lab, don't they? It's not that what we're hearing is not true. It's just that for some reason or other, at the last minute or whatever, they decide not to bring the product to market. But it sounds like this one might be quite far down the development track. The other interesting thing, we have a Ring Video Doorbell Pro. I must admit, I'm not a huge fan of it, as we've talked about before on this podcast, or maybe it was the blind side. You know, it's not the best audio quality when someone comes to the door. And as someone with a hearing impairment, I have had a bit of difficulty hearing people sometimes on the Ring Video Doorbell Pro. But apparently, they've introduced soup drinker support for the Ring Video Doorbell Pro. So what happens is that someone rings the bell and this thing says, hi, it's the soup drinker. What's the purpose of your call? And on it goes. I can't find it in my Ring Video Doorbell app. So it's possible that this is not available in my region. But if you have the Ring Video Doorbell Pro, and apparently it has to be the Pro, you should be able to now go into the app 
And there's a new feature there that's, I think it's called smart responses or something like that. That sounds really nifty. And it's sensitive to the responses. So if it detects that it's somebody saying, I have a package for Jonathan, for example, it will say, she'll come back and say, does your package require a signature? And if the person says yes, then it somehow summonses you or something. It's really quite neat. And if they say no, then you can pre-program it with instructions about where the courier should be told to leave the package. Hi, Jonathan. Last week, you asked about the situation regarding the funding of hearing aids in other countries. In the Netherlands, I guess you have three options, and the default one is health insurance. So then you have to go to the doctor, and the doctor will assess your situation and your hearing loss, and then he will assign you to one out of five categories, which indicates how intensively you use your hearing aids and how advanced your hearing aid needs to be. So if you are assigned to category one, your hearing loss is not very severe and or you only use your hearing aid in simple situations such as understanding your family at home and that means you get a cheaper hearing aid. And if you are assigned to category five, you have a more profound hearing loss and or you use your hearing aid in more complicated situations such as work. And then with the prescription from your doctor with that category on it, you go to your audiologist and your audiologist has a database which for every hearing aid states a category and the audiologist chooses the best hearing aid for you based on the category to which you were assigned. So that's a great system. Everybody gets the hearing aid that matches their hearing impairment and the situation that they use their hearing aids in and the hearing aids that are funded will not be too expensive. But the major catch is that the database of hearing aids that can be funded by health insurance only includes older and thereby cheaper models. And the policy explicitly states that you cannot get any funding for any hearing aid outside that database. So if I say I want to buy the newest Oticon hearing aids and just give me the money and I'll pay the difference, they will say, no, we can only fund the hearing aids in that database. And there are good reasons for that one-size-fits-all policy. But as with most one-size-fits-all policy, it victimizes the people in an exceptional situation, such as blind hearing aid users with an active lifestyle. And for those users, the most advanced hearing aids are not really a luxury. We really need the behavior of those advanced hearing aids in the advanced situations where we not only depend on our ears for mobility, but we also depend on our ears for listening to people, right? Sighted people can always fall back on lip reading and other things, but for us, the only means of communication is our ears. So it's not a luxury, but you are out of luck if you want to get it funded through health insurance. Of course, there are always ways around it if you are clever enough, but in principle, If you need the most advanced hearing aids, no luck with health insurance. The second option, if you do not claim anything with your health insurance, you can deduct the cost of your hearing aids from your taxable income. So you pay less taxes. There are all kinds of complicated rules around it. 
But this option is especially attractive if your income is not too high. And I used that option last time when my income was not that high yet. And I got back around half of the price of the hearing aids. So the hearing aids, which cost a little bit over 4,000 euros, ultimately cost me 2,000 euros in net income, which is still a lot. But of course, it makes a major difference. The last option, if you study or you are employed, you can sometimes get funding from the employment agency, which also provides funding for your braille display in that case. But that is very complicated. That's very limited circumstances in which they will do that. Or, of course, your employer can fund your hearing aids. These days, I employ myself, so... Blind Mobility, my super-duper big-boy consultancy firm, is likely to buy me a great pair of hearing aids next time I need them because my business really depends on me understanding people while I'm presenting or just socializing or doing anything related to my business. So there is a very clear case that this is a business expense in my situation. And of course, that saves a lot of tax. So there are ways to get your hearing aids funded. But if you really need advanced hearing aids and you don't have the kind of income that will allow you to pay 2,000 euros or more for your hearing aids, then you will have to try to get them funded, but that's very complicated. Expect multiple doctor visits and a lot of complicated letter writing. Or you will just have to manage with far less advanced hearing aids, which do not really meet your needs. And that's the situation that we have here. So the system, which in theory tailors to your needs and gives you the right hearing aid while avoiding excessive cost of hearing aid funding because let's face it the hearing aid industry is a very commercial industry but that system is actually preventing the people who need the most advanced hearing aids most and who need the funding most from getting those advanced hearing aids and if you remember my earlier contribution regarding the Dutch system of disability benefits, there is a parallel here because that system also works great for the majority of cases, but is really going to place you out of work if you are in a not so common situation. Well, hello, Jonathan and all your listeners. This is Andy Repture. And for some reason in the last few days, I've been pondering the virtues of a very simple device that somebody came up with for our benefit, the Cube Slate. This cool little device enabled us to do basic mathematics and even simple algebraic equations. For the benefit of anyone who's never seen or used one, it's a little board with 15 rows and 15 columns of square holes. In those holes you place cubes which have braille markings on five sides and the sixth side is blank. Even when I was a kid I thought it was ingenious that one face of a cube could actually represent more than one thing. Take for example dots one five 
that can be a 5, or if you rotate the cube, it can be a 9. I always thought that the 1, 2, 4 was the power side of a cube, because it could do 4 things. It was 4, 6, 8, and 0. And you could use the blank side as an unknown in an equation. So just for fun, I did a check online today. And sure enough, you can buy a Braille cube slate for 50 to $60. I might get one just for fun, even though I have no practical use for it. Thanks, be well, and so long. <laughs> you be well too, Andy, because it sounds like you've got too much time on your hands. I haven't heard of the cube slate. I don't know whether any of my fellow listeners in New Zealand who went to school at the same time as me have heard of this cube slate thing or whether we just missed out on this. One thing I do remember in this space very clearly was this abacus. And there were two types of abacus, which I think means that the plural of abacus must be abacai. The one that I think was blindness specific, because I think it had Braille on the back of it, you know, like a Braille label, was this thing that had beads, one, two, three, four, f- four, four beads at the bottom. And then you had this kind of ridgy thing that stopped the beads from moving everywhere. And then there was a, a bead at the top on its own that represented five. In other words, in each column, you could have nine. So you'd start on the far right with nine, and then the next one would be the tens column. And I remember we were schooled quite extensively in the use of this app because I can still remember the teacher saying, set one to the left and clear nine. And they taught us how to do addition and subtraction and then division and all sorts of things with this abacus. And the other abacus was a big thing. I remember it being quite tall and it had these beads. It was far larger and far sort of looser. I'm not as clear about that abacus or why it was that we had two different types of abacus. <laughs> Does anyone else remember these different abacai? So, gear to help blind people do the mathematics. The slate cube, which is new to me, and those old abacai. <laughs> Always good to reminisce if you have any memories of those. Hello, Jonathan and listeners, and thanks for continuing to produce a wonderful podcast. Thought I'd drop you a note to let you know about some new home automation I've set up in my house and some early first impressions. I've gone with two products to complement the existing products, which are an Apple HD TV, some scattered Google Home Minis, one Amazon set, and two Apple HomePods. I've installed Philips Hue Lighting. That's the first product I'll talk to you about. And I chose that over the LifeX and other non-Apple HomeKit-compatible lights because I wanted an ecosystem that would work between two of the three smart systems, either Google or Apple. And my preference was Google and Apple because that's what I've got the most of in terms of smart speakers throughout the house. I took the view that even though the Apple Home app has stayed accessible consistently for a long period of time, you can't have all your eggs in one basket as a totally blind person with accessibility. So it was worth paying the premium and having Apple HomeKit devices in the house. So the first criteria was every device installed had to be HomeKit compatible. I then looked at how the lights connect and took the view that the Philips Hue lights, after some research, were likely to be more stable in their connection because they connect through a bridge provided, uh, purchased separately from Philips, 
which takes a load to some extent off your Wi-Fi network. Time will tell whether that investment was um, wise or not, but it seems to be on initial impressions. I needed 16 globes and I chose the white globes instead of the colour globes because most people's houses don't have coloured lighting. I've got two children, 14 and 10, who are now saying they would have liked a colour globe for their bedroom and I've said to them, well, we might look at getting an LED strip or something like that to go in there. It's worth noting at this point that had I chosen lights that were just compatible with Amazon or Google Home, I could have got out of it with, say, some of the Harvey Norman exclusive brands or some of the cheaper brands for as little as about $10 a globe. And whilst it was very tempting to go with a set of lights, which for 16 globes would have cost under $200, I just thought it was worth spending the extra and having everything set up as I wanted it and having a premium experience through the process. But if budgets are limited, it could have been set up and used with the Amazon app or the Google Home app through your smartphone. Now, the other thing with the Philips lights that's excellent is you can get switches which go on your wall. They magnetise to a plate which you can stick on the wall next to your normal light switch. And those switches have on them... Uh, a series of buttons and the switch if I can describe it has one two three four buttons top one is on bottom one is off and the two in the middle are programmable so on my lights I've put three switches in the house one in the living room one in each of my children's bedrooms so that when they have friends over or when I've got sighted people over in my house who are not used to using the tech they can still turn the lights on and off as you normally would. The top button, which is the button that turns the lights on, is programmed to turn them on at 100% of their power. The one underneath is 80, and the one underneath that is 20. So you can set the different mood using the power buttons if you're not very tech savvy and don't want to use the telephone. So my house is your traditional older style house, lounge room, dining room combined, and then kitchen. So the switch that's in the lounge room is programmed to turn on lounge room, dining room and kitchen because essentially that is all one large room divided off by what we call in Australia a breakfast bench. So someone with sight or someone who's not technical can just walk into the front door of my house, come into the lounge room, push the on switch and turn on those main lights that they're going to be using and then use Siri or Google to control the hall and the bathroom. I am going to add a bathroom sensor so that when you walk into my bathroom, the light automatically switches on, and when you walk out, it automatically switches off. Some would say, well, is it not that hard just to flick a switch? The difficulty I have is I live with sighted children who often leave the lights on, and I'm sick of walking around the house as a blind person, feeling every light switch to see if it's on or off, or walking around with an app like Seeing AI detecting light and then trying to work out whether it's a gap in the curtain or whether it's coming from the overhead lights. I just think putting a little sensor in the bathroom uh, and having this set up with the Philips Hue lights will assist significantly in that respect. For my door, I chose to get a Yale Unity door lock. It's not a deadbolt. It fits on, if you can imagine, the bottom lock of a two-lock door where in place of your normal door handle. There's an optional keypad which I went for on the outside of the door which is tactile and easy to use with 10 numbers and a lock and unlock button at the bottom. 
I can allocate PIN codes to anybody and I can also unlock the door with my smartphone through the home app. The use case for this is I've got two children that need to come into my house. I've got a cleaner. I've got the children's tutor and one or two other people that come in from time to time who aren't going to be set up on my home with smart homes. So I open the door with Siri or I can open it with a keypad. If my children come into the house, I can see in the activity log on the lock who opened the door and at what time. So I see their name and that they unlocked the door and I see their name and that they locked the door again. That's not critical for my children, but it is useful when I have people like a cleaner or a tutor come into the house because I know how long they've been there and I can compare that to the invoices for what they're charging. And I'm also in total control wherever I am in the house or outside of the house of who's in the house and for how long. And if someone comes in through the front door and I'm not quite sure who it is, even though I can see the app, if I'm thinking I can see the log in the lock, if I'm thinking I wonder if there's one or two of them come in, there's another in the living room and I can just drop into that and have a listen to what's going on and who's there. So it just gives me total peace of mind in terms of security and knowing who's around my house. I don't want any of your listeners thinking I'm paranoid, but I just thought I'd cover off on all angles. The other pleasing thing about the lock, it comes with two smart fobs, which you can use to unlock it. So you just put them up to the lock and it opens. I personally don't have a need for that because I've got Siri activated on my Apple Watch, which I can also unlock it with, and my phone. My 14-year-old daughter, who's sighted, we couldn't get the home app to work for more than one of us controlling the lock through the home app. But because my 14-year-old has sight, she can use the Yale app and quite happily unlock and lock the door from her mobile phone. The other thing that's excellent is when you're in the house as a blind person and you're unsure whether the door is locked, I'm sure we've all done it where we walk to the front door and turn the handle to see if it's open or shut, you can actually go into your app and the home app will tell you front door is locked, front door unlocked, and you can ask Siri to tell you the same thing. It also, the Yale Unity door lock is compatible with Alexa and Google Assistant. But back to my earlier point, when Apple traditionally is the most accessible flat platform, I have chosen to program this one into Apple. I haven't programmed it into the Google ecosystem. I'm sorry to say, but I just don't trust Google enough, uh, or Amazon for that matter, in terms of having my information on a door lock and security. The lovely thing also about the Yale Unity door lock and most of the Yale locks when they're com uh, configured through HomeKit, you can't actually unlock them through the HomePod. That's because a burglar could shout through the window and say, hey, it's unlock my door uh, and the door would come unlocked. You must do it from your phone, which is a really nifty security feature. But I will play you one Siri command that shows you what the, how you can check the status of your door. I've walked to my lounge room. The home pods are on. Hey, what's the status of the front door lock? Your front door is locked. And there you go. So you can keep an eye on the home. What I will be adding later in the year, there is a Apple HomeKit doorbell going to be released, and I'll be adding that to the front door. Uh, there's one already existing that is powered, but I don't want to 
putting electrical cables through the wall and things like that because I don't want to be able to retrofit it. So I'll add that later in the year. The other thing I have is a Tado smart air conditioner controller. That allows the air conditioning to be controlled through my home app. So I can say to the air conditioner, hey, turn the air conditioner on. Done. Siri just said done. Moving to the air conditioner, you might hear a beep. And there's the beep. It's now turned the air conditioner on, and I can control that from anywhere where I have an internet connection. Hey, turn the air conditioner off. And off it goes. Sensibo do also make a smart air conditioning controller, which is fine, but it only works with Google and Alexa. And I think from memory, this one was about $170, $180, and the Sensibo is $100. Anywhere between $120 and $160. Again, there's a difference in price, slight difference, but I think it's well worth it. That's just some information from my uh, journey and initial impressions with some additional automation in the home. I hope it's of use to people. There's a company, particularly for those in Australia and New Zealand, called Demotic, D-O-M-O-T-I-C.com.au, and they were instrumental in helping me set this process up. Great stuff. Thank you very much for that, Vaughan. It's interesting how much variation there is in the product lines that are available around the world, and perhaps Voltage has something to do with that. But we love our home automation. You know, we have our three heat pumps controllable, but not by Siri at this stage, I'm afraid. We have Mitsubishi heat pumps, which have Wi-Fi built in through a module, but they have not introduced HomeKit support, so that's really cool that you have that. We also like the Philips Hue lights. And when my kids were a bit younger and they would bring a lot of friends home, you know, for the weekend or sleepovers or whatever, they loved the color-changing light bulbs. They would say, watch this, and then they'd tell the drinker to set the lights to some weird color. And people would say, whoa, you know, because it was such a novelty. <laughs> but the other thing you can do with the Philips Hue lights is you can query them with Siri about whether a particular set of lights are on or off. So I can say, are the lights in the studio on? And Siri will tell me whether they're on or off. And that's certainly useful for people who don't have light perception. For all things Mosin at large, check out the website where you can listen to episodes online, subscribe using your favourite podcast app, and contact the show. Just point your browser to podcast.mosen.org. That's podcast.mosen.org. Mosen at Large Podcast. A very contented Brian Howerton writes in, and he says, Hi, Jonathan, hope you are doing well. I have recently started listening to the Mosin at Large podcast, and I wanted to say thanks so much for your review of the Mantis Q40. Because of your review, I have since sold my note-taker and have purchased a Mantis, and it just got here this past Friday. I am absolutely loving it, and am loving typing on a QWERTY keyboard and having Braille with an uppercase B right at my fingertips. It's absolutely beautiful. It has become the only display I use now, and I can't wait to see where APH takes the Mantis in the future. On another note, I have gone back in the podcast archives and have been listening to your podcasts on Ulysses. I think I would really like to give this app a try. 
as I too have been looking for an app that would allow me to do content creation on my iPhone. I myself have never used Markdown before, and so I am a little overwhelmed by the concept of that and also trying to get my head around the Ulysses app, but it looks amazing. I'm not sure if you've done a demo of the Ulysses app itself, but I would love to see a demo of the app and would love to see a little of your workflow as to how you are using it, and now in particular with your Mantis. You may have already done a demo and I just haven't gone back far enough in the archives, but if not, I would love to see a demo of this app and see how you use it on a day-to-day basis in your workflow. Also, I know in one of your podcasts you mentioned a Kindle book that you used when trying to learn Markdown, and I was curious to know the name of that Kindle book. Thanks so much for all the great content, Jonathan, and thanks again so much for the demo of The Mantis. I'm glad I found your demo and the podcast, and I'm so glad I purchased The Mantis. It really is an awesome device. Thanks again so much. Well, I'm glad you like it, Brian, because it's not a cheap device, is it? I mean, Braille displays have got a lot cheaper, but it's still a big chunk of change. So I'm really pleased that you're pleased. It's a good device. Now, regarding Ulysses, I have done quite a bit on Ulysses in various podcasts, so you may just need to keep going back. But as we rapidly approach our 100th episode, this is an opportune time for me to mention a little trick that a lot of people don't know. You can learn lots of tricks like this, shameless plug, in my audiobook called The Secret Source of Savvy Search. It's amazing what you can learn in there, but I'll pass this one on because it will help. The main website for Mosin at Large's podcast feed is hosted by our provider, Pinecast, and that is mosinatlarge.pinecast.co, not .com, but .co. Knowing this, you can, of course, just trolley on back through the archives there and search for what there is, but you can also use Google to do a very quick search for what you want. And as we get more and more podcasts in Mosin at Large, this becomes handy. And I do take the time in every episode to provide very detailed show notes about precisely what we've talked about in this episode and when in the episode it happens. So that means that uh, it's ideal for searching. So if you, for example, want to find all the episodes where Ulysses is mentioned, it's really easy. All you do is go to your address bar in your browser, where typically you can perform a Google search or a search with your search engine of choice. This may not work in all search engines, but it certainly works with Google. And what you do is you type Ulysses in this case, because that's what you're searching for. So type Ulysses and then a space and then site colon and then the name of the site. So in this case, you want site colon mosinatlarge.pinecast.co. What you'll then get is a nice list of all the Mosin at Large episodes where we've ever mentioned Ulysses. Sweet! And I think you'll find the first reference to Ulysses is all the way back in episode six of Mosin at Large in 2019. But it's all there. So that's how you do it. And as we get more episodes, it's a really cool trick to go back into this archive because listeners have contributed so much useful information. We really are building up quite a treasure trove of useful hints and tips. So that's a cool way to do it. Regarding the book on Markdown, I should say there are a lot of free resources on Markdown. So if you're just getting with the basics and you want to know how to make headings and things like that, you could probably just write Markdown syntax into a search engine and get what you need. 
But if you want to read that book that I read, and it is good, it's called Writing in Markdown. And the author is Matt Gemmell, G-E-M-M-E-L-L. To contribute to Mosin at Large, you can email Jonathan, that's J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N, at mushroomfm.com by writing something down or attaching an audio file. Or you can call our listener line, it's a US number, 864-60-MOSIN. That's 864-606-6736. Mosin!